Welcome to the Kaleo Life Podcast. You can find more resources for gospel living and information about us by going to our website, kaleo.community. Enjoy today's sermon. So Revelation chapter 3, verse 7 through uh, 13. And the word reads, And to the angel of the church in uh, Philadelphia... Write the words, write the words of the Holy One, the true one who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. I know your works. Behold, I have set before you an open door, which no one is able to shut. I know that you have but little power. And yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. Behold. I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not belied. Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet. And they will learn that I have loved you. Because you have kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. I am coming soon. Hold fast. Uh, to what you have so that no one may seize your crown. The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it. And I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven and my own new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the spirit says to the churches. I'll invite you right where you're at if you would just join me as I ask the Lord for help and the power of his spirit. Father, in the name of your son, we just want to continue our worship to you. And here, we ask that your spirit teach us today uh, through your word. Holy Spirit, we ask that you glorify the Christ, Jesus, uh, that you would receive honor, Jesus is our desire that you would build up and edify your church today. Uh, Lord, grant me, O Lord, the gift of teaching and preaching and grant me the power of your Holy Spirit, both physical and uh, the sharpness of mind, Lord. But grant us, O Lord, together uh, in your mercy, because we are your people, because of what you have done, uh, grant us the gift of hearing to be able to understand. As the psalmist prayed, open our eyes, Lord. Open our eyes that we may behold wondrous things in your law, in your scripture. In Jesus' name, amen. Um, I, I'd like, I'm, I'm a big quote guy, so if you would let me just start with a quote. Um, Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, um, the good doctor. Uh, he said the following, and, and he's talking about the eternal perspective and how Christians focus on the eternal perspective. They, they base their life on it. And he's making a contrast between um, how the Christian focuses on eternity always it's, it's how he makes his decisions, it's how he lives. In contrast to the unbeliever who we were once were, didn't think about these eternal things. So he says the following. He says, again, you see the obvious difference between the Christian and the non-Christian. The non-Christian does everything he can not to think of the world beyond and especially to avoid thinking of death and the world to come. That is typical of the non-Christian. There's nothing he so hates as talking about death and eternity. But the Christian, on the other hand, the Christian, the Christian is a man who thinks a great deal about these things. He dwells upon them. 
there are great controlling principles and factors in the whole of his life and outlook. That, that's so true. You know, uh, we're gathered here in a park and we're singing to the risen Christ, waiting for the risen Christ, and we're open to the book of Revelation while we're at the park. And if someone were to ask you, why in the world are you doing that for? I think, I think Lloyd-Jones has it right. We could answer, well, because the Christian thinks a great deal about these things. We could say he dwells upon them and they are great controlling principles and factors in the whole of his life and outlook. I mean, this is why we are gathered here today to look at eternal things. And, and if there is a book that we would open up to look at what is to come, if there is somewhere to study to see uh, how to live today in light of what will happen tomorrow, surely, surely, it would be uh, the scriptures, but surely we would, might go to the book of Revelation to see what is to come. And my understanding is that uh, you've already been there. You've been there for, uh, to chapter three. And the task that has been given to me is just to continue uh, the work that has been, uh, been taking place by the Holy Spirit and the elders that he's placed among you. So Revelation chapter three, seven, 13, that, that's what we're gonna do. We're just gonna continue to look at eternity so that it may impact our life now. And we may live in light of what is to come. Um, and let's set the stage briefly. Uh, things that, that we have looked at already, I'm sure. I was listening to some of the sermons uh, from Benjamin. And I'm, th- this has already been said, but let's, let's set the stage once more. This is the revelation of Jesus Christ. Christ is making himself known. And it is given to the apostle John uh, while he is in the island of Patmos on account and the testimony of the word of God, right? Uh, he's suffering for the gospel. And this message is given to seven churches who, uh, as we've seen already, uh, some of them are suffering already. They're sharing in the suffering. That's the words of John, the apostle, sharing the tribulation in John 1, 9, right? Antipas in chapter two has already been martyred. Uh, There is rejection going on. And so these seven churches need to hear from the risen Christ and the risen Christ speaks, sends these messages to the seven churches in Asia. Um, through the uh, to specifically addressed in every one of these messages to the angelos, um, the messenger of the church. And I, I'm not going to get too much into this, but I know that we've looked at this before. And this is most likely a reference to the, the speaker, the one who's going to teach, uh, perhaps a teaching elder, a leader, someone who is uh, going to receive the message, take the message, but most importantly, give the message. So, so these, this is definitely some sort of leader, um, responsible, a pastor, an elder, perhaps. And then this message comes to the seven churches, and, and that's where we're at, the, the, the church of Philadelphia. And um, there are at least three things that always occur in these messages. So if, if we were to look at each one of these seven messages, there's at least three ingredients in them, all of them. Uh, earlier today, I was in a second service and we were talking to some men and we were just examining each one of the, the churches and the messages. And we said, hey, you know, these three points are always in every one of these seven messages. And I just want to share those three points. And then I want to encourage you, perhaps as you read the rest of the letters, to see those three points in each one of these messages. So here's the first one. Okay. Um, each one of these messages is going, Christ is going to address a specific church. And then he's going to identify himself specifically, right? He's going to introduce himself and speak of Christology, who he is, who is Christ. That's definitely going to be found in every one of these messages. Second, after he addresses a specific church and identifies himself with Christological statements, he's going to give 
intimate knowledge of the church, right? I know your works. He says that to every one of the churches. So he is going to express to each one of these churches that he knows them intimately. He knows everything about them, individually and collectively. And then he's going to give a specific message to that church. And within that message, there's usually encouragement, exhortation, and correction. With a few exceptions, there's some churches that are persevering in such a way that they need no correction. This is one of the churches we're going to talk about today, the Church of Philadelphia. But, but the second thing that is found in every one of these letters is intimate knowledge and then a specific message with encouragement, exhortation, and or correction. And then finally, finally, each one of these uh, messages will include a call to hear, right? At the end of every message, there's that, that phrase that he used to tell his disciples, right? He used to teach about the kingdom. And then he used to tell his disciples, he who has an ear to hear, let him listen. So that, that is given at the end of every one of these messages to the seven churches. And that's basically the pattern of the message of the church of Philadelphia. So that, there we have it. If, if you were to teach this to your family uh, or teach it to a friend, there you have the outline there to every one of these seven messages. This is what's going on here. Just look for those specific things. And I just wish to look at Philadelphia with you and, and look, at those, look at those three things. And let's start with that. Jesus addressing the church. This is Jesus speaking, the risen Christ speaking. And he will, if we look at these three uh, points, he will identify himself with some Christological statements. And then he will also address a specific church. And we see that in verse seven. Verse seven, and to the angel of the church in Philadelphia, there's the specific church. And here's the, uh, uh, the Christology, what Jesus says of himself. The words of the Holy One, the true one who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one will open. Uh, he identifies himself um, with some statements. And um, I was listening to Pastor Benjamin and, and he said something that, that is worthy of repeating again. These statements are somehow supposed to encourage the church. They're, they're, they're not accidental He's not throwing words out there. They're meant to, to encourage the church. They're, they're supposed to look at who Jesus is and respond to who Jesus is. And so let's look at that and, and divide it in two ways. He's the holy and true one. And then he is the one who has the key of David and specifically the key of David who opens a door that no one can shut. And if he shuts a door, no one else can open it. Uh, so let's, let's look at that. The first one, the, the holy and true one. And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia, write the words of the holy one and the true one. Holy is a reference that is, uh, means purity. It's a reference to the righteousness of Christ. He is without sin. He is blameless. Uh, he is without error, incapable of making a mistake. And then he is true, a reference to the total trustworthiness and reliability of Jesus. Everything he speaks, we can rely on completely. Every promise he gives, his people can hold onto and be certain that it will come to pass. Every judgment that he gives, his enemies can be certain will come to pass. He is the Holy One who is incapable of leading his people astray, is incapable of sinning or leading his people to sin. And he is the true one, which we can rely fully on. That's who Jesus is. He is holy and true are definitely truths for his church. In other words, this is something that the church is supposed to hear. The church of Philadelphia will be comforted by this and we'll see why this will comfort them. But there's another statement that he makes and, 
And this is the one that he holds the key of David, right? Verse seven, he holds the key of David. What is that a reference to? Uh, it is definitely a reference to Isaiah 22, 22. Definitely. And, and, I'll, and I'll tell you why. Let me read the, the words of Isaiah. And this is a messianic passage. The Messiah is the one who gets to keep this promise and fulfill this promise. Isaiah 22, 22, just hear it. Uh, the, the, he, he says, I, I, to, to the Christ, to, to, I will place on his shoulder the key of the house of David. He shall open and none shall shut. He shall shut and none shall open. Uh, this is almost word for word verbatim what Jesus is saying. Um, you know, if, if, if this is a messianic passage in Isaiah 22, which it is, or since it is, uh, this is a, a key that only the Messiah can take. Only the Christ, the promised judge of the world, the promised savior can take. On it, it says, this key belongs to Christ, the descendant of David, the one who sit on the throne of David forever. And Jesus says, I have it. That's what he's telling the church. It belongs to me. This Jesus whom we have trusted is holding the key of David. He, this Jesus of Nazareth, born of a virgin, uh, who the people in his day bore witness to his miracles. I mean, uh, the, the call out the witnesses. This Jesus, the one who would make blind people see, born blind and now, and now seen, the one who would raise the dead, who would make paralytics walk, the one who spoke the very words of God. This Jesus who died on the cross, resurrected on the, 30, on, the, on, the, on the third day, the Holy One is the one who has the right and authority. The Father has given him the key. This is supposed to come for the church of Philadelphia. And we'll see in a second why, but this is definitely Jesus's way of saying all these messianic promises, the key that has the name of Christ, it also says Jesus on it. Jesus. The keys are representative of his full authorization to rule the house of God. The people of God, the kingdom of God, the key represents his rightful and sovereign authority to judge to save, to forgive, to give access to the Father's kingdom. And who has those keys? Jesus and Jesus alone. This is an exclusive statement. The exclusivity of Christ is, is in light here. It's what we're supposed to be thinking. Nobody else is authorized to give access into the kingdom. No one else is authorized to grant forgiveness. No one else is authorized to judge the living and the dead. It's Jesus and Jesus alone. Now, here's the question. So Jesus, who is holy and true and has the keys of the key of David, which grants access to the grace and the eternal kingdom of God. Why is this so important to the church of Philadelphia? This will take us to the next point in the message. Christ gives intimate knowledge of his church and he gives them a specific message. So this information is meant for the church of Philadelphia. And as we will find out at the end, it's also meant for us. But for now, why is this important for them to hear? Uh, well, he tells us, uh, verse eight, the intimate knowledge of the church. Verse uh, eight, he says, I know your works. Speaking of intimate knowledge of his church. And what does he know? What does he know about the church of Philadelphia? He knows that they are being rejected by the world. That's what he knows. Verse eight, he says, uh, I know you have little power and strength. This speaks a little bit about their rejection. 
someone with greater authority than them, at least in earthly ways of speaking, is making them see their weakness here, uh, at least apparent weakness on earth. This rejection, we can kind of start to put the pieces together because we see more of it in verse eight. It says that they have kept Jesus's word and have not denied Jesus's name. Do you see that in the text? Uh, There is strong pressure by someone greater than them, somebody in authority coming for them uh, in the midst of the assembly and calling them to deny Jesus as the one who holds the key of David. Someone is saying, no, he doesn't. Someone is saying, no, it's not exclusive. Someone is saying, no, Jesus isn't this person. And they're causing or pressuring these saints to deny him. We get more information about the rejection that Jesus is very well aware of. Uh, In verse eight, he continues to say, you have kept my word, but look at verse nine. And now we start to see a bigger picture of this rejection. He says, those of the synagogue of Satan who say they are Jews, but are not. And then he says, they will learn that I have loved you. Oh, we know where the rejection is coming from. These are a people who once belonged to a synagogue with specific, uh, some Jews in the first century who would not accept Jesus as the Christ. You've heard this before. He's just a prophet. Oh, no, he was a good teacher. Uh, They will not accept him, at least some here. And therefore those who do, they're starting to push them away. I mean, they're, they're willing to keep them, but they have to deny one thing. And that is that Jesus is who he said he is. You you can stay in the synagogue with your mother and your father that sit there always. You can stay in the synagogue and you can continue to shop around in the markets. You can continue to have your business, but you do have to push away uh, this this statement of the exclusivity that Jesus of Nazareth is who he says he is. And if you do, the the pressure is off. Dr. Vadi Bakum once said, if you want persecution to stop, all you have to do is stop following Jesus. All you have to do is stop trusting his statements. All you have to do is go back and they're holding on. And Jesus says, I I know this. I I know the losses that are occurring. They once belonged to a synagogue. They once ate with them. They shared life with them. They most likely had family members and certainly friends there. Now the doors are closing on them. There's no more access into the synagogue. They're losing access and to friendships, losing access to family members, access perhaps to business. They are losing many things. And Jesus says, I know. He knows of their rejections. He's not ignoring the suffering. You know, before I was a believer, I used to have that idea. You know, we create our own versions of God. And one of my ideas was that God, there had to be one. I mean, we look at things and we say, it's just impossible for there not to be a God, a one who creates things and designs things. That's an impossibility. But this is where I went wrong. I said, there's a God, but he's surely far away from my suffering. He, 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 he kind of, you know, did the clock thing, created it, winded it and just let it go. He doesn't know, or at least doesn't care. Well, this just blows that to shreds. Because he knows and he cares. That's why he he keeps on telling them these things. I know, I know, I see it, I see it. Does he know the suffering of his people? You know, in in Revelation chapter two, we don't have to turn there, but one of the the most encouraging statements is when he mentions, mentions the name of the martyr Antipas by name. 
He says, I know what you've gone through. And he says, Antipas. That's all he says. Doesn't mention us, something else about him, but, but can you imagine how encouraging that would have been to a church that he knows exactly what they are going through? And, and you can be assured that this risen Christ knows exactly what you're going through. So Jesus knows. So, so we're going in the second part of it, intimate knowledge of his church. This is a rejected church. They're losing access, losing, losing the privileges and the places of honor, losing friends and family. And then he gives them the specific message. Gives them a specific message. And he's going to commend their perseverance because they're definitely per- persevering. In verse 10, he says, you have kept my word of pati- about patient endurance. So he's going to commend their perseverance and he's going to give them truth to encourage them to persevere. So he's going to say, you're persevering and I'm going to give you what you need to continue to persevere. That's, that's what this message is going to be contained. After in verse 10, he says, you have kept my word about patient endurance. In verse 11, he says, I am coming soon. Hold fast to what you have. You're enduring, but continue to endure. Paraphrase. Keep on holding on. Keep on holding the line. You know, it's almost like, like you're in a battlefield and you're feeling the pressure. And he says, keep on holding the line. We're almost there. Keep on, keep on keeping on, he's saying. All right, Lord, you want me to keep on keeping on? Please give me encouragement. I, I mean, I'm here. I'm committed. You've given me all these things. I can't turn back. I can't, I can't go back. Only you have the words of eternal life. But I need more. Please help me. You know, we're going through Psalm 119. We've been there for the past year in our, in our church. And there is a petition there that's quite interesting. He says, Lord, give me life. He repeats it. Just go through it. Give me life according to your word. My soul clings to the dust. Lord, give me life. It seems that believers not only receive persecution, they endure, but they need more help to endure. Good news. Jesus gives it. Jesus will give it to you today. And, and it's found in who he is. It's found in what he's done on the cross for his people and what he has promised to them when he returns. The, the eschatological promises are going to encourage them. So what is going to happen tomorrow and the day to come and the age to come is supposed to encourage them now. Um, let's look at some of that. Let's look at some of that. All right. So he, he's going to give encouragements and there's at least four. There's at least four. And, and we'll look at them. So he, he's commending their perseverance, encouraging them to continue to persevere. And he's going to give them the specific message of encouragement. Verse nine, he said, this is the encouragement. Though they are hated by the world, they are loved by Christ. Though they are hated by the world, they are loved by Christ. Verse nine, behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say they are Jews and are not. Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet. And, and I love this, this statement. And they will learn that I have loved you. Encouragement number one, though they are hated by the world, they are loved by Christ. And I can assure you, I can assure you that though we are despised by the world, the greatest comfort that a Christian can have is that he's known by Jesus and loved by him. And that, that's, that's the encouragement. The Lord knows them and the Lord loves them. They don't have to doubt it in their suffering. Encouragement number two. It's also found in verse nine. Though they are humbled by the proud now, the proud will be humbled before them later. Right? Let's read that verse once more. Verse nine. 
Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not Belial. Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet and they will learn that I have loved you. Uh, their suffering will end. And verse nine, the tables have turned and they have turned into an unreturnable context. Uh, this is the end and the proud are now bowed at their feet. And this is not a worship of the saints. This is not a, 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 a worship of those who suffered. The reason that they are bowed at the, their feet is because Jesus is standing next to them. We know this because Jesus speaks and says, they will learn that I have loved you. You see, they were waiting for the Messiah and they're waiting for the Christ to come who would judge the enemies of the Lord and give the kingdom to his people, not realizing that they have been persecuting his people all along. And now the tables have turned and the one whom they see who is the Christ, the one who has the key of David is the very one they rejected. This is a bit horrific. We were talking about this in, with some of the men earlier today. And, and at first, one of the men said, well, this, this is, brings me great joy because their suffering is going to end. But he says, he says uh, Brother Dan said, but this great joy is also mixed with, with almost a, a sense of horror. A sense of horror for those who reject him now. For there is no more preaching for them to hear. There is no more calls of preachers to tell them, turn to Jesus. There is no more time for prayers for those who are lost. There is no more time to hear the warnings. It has ceased. The tables have turned. And this is meant to encourage the church and to bring warning to those who reject him. There's a third encouragement. And I ask that you bear with me on this one in verse 10. I will be as humble and as careful as I can with this. Uh, the world will go through great trials without God's keeping, but they will be kept. They will be kept. And let's read verse 10 uh, together. In verse 10, it says, because you have kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. Um, I'm, I'm not going to talk about pre-trib or mid-trib or post-trib on this. Okay. I, I will share my, my humble thoughts on this. And, and, and then if, if somebody wishes to talk after, please, I know there's elders here and pastors here, please speak with them, uh, talk with them. And if, if you care to hear more, I would love to spend time with you. But, but at the very least, at the very least, there is a promise that he will keep these people in a way that he is not keeping the world, right? And, and I do wish for us to see that there's a play on words here. And Jesus is being very intentional on the play on words. Uh, look at verse 10 with me and look at the play on words, okay? Because you have kept, and this is uh, 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 the same Greek word he's about to repeat. Because you have kept my word, okay? And the Greek word means guarded, preserved. You've given careful, diligent attention to. You valued it. You cared for it. You kept it. Okay, you obeyed it. Jesus repeat this again and says, because you have kept my word, he says, I will keep you. So he's playing on the words, he's repeating it. So, so I think the meaning, uh, Jesus explains it for us. I will preserve you. I will protect you. I, I will keep you safe in one way or another. I will keep you keeping on. Something that does not belong to the rest of the world. This is supposed to comfort his church. Uh, one last thing on this. He's going to keep them. 
in the same way he's kept all his people. All right? He's going to keep them the same way he kept Job in his suffering. He's going to keep them the same way he kept Joseph in his uh, unjust suffering. He's going to keep them the same way he kept Daniel in his persecutions. He's going to keep them the same way he kept his disciples through their suffering. He's going to keep them in the same way he's kept the apostles in their suffering. Now that looks differently in every one of them, but I can assure you he kept them. And that is the promise he is giving to his church. I will be there for you and keep you. Blessed be God for the promise that we so much need that he would keep us in this way. Thank you so much, brother. Appreciate you. And finally, he gives them another encouragement. And these are, he just bombards them with images of victory. These are images of victory. And, and we're going to go through these together. But the, he finishes with images of victory in the last verses. And he mentions the crown, right? We see that in the text. He mentions a crown. He mentions a permanent pillar, the temple of God. He's going to make them into a permanent, permanent pillar in the temple of God. He mentions the new Jerusalem, the city of God. And then he mentions giving him a name, giving them a name in, their, in the city. All these are images of victory. Now, let me just share why. The crown. The crown uh, has already been mentioned in 2.10. It's given to the victor. It's, it's a word that was used of a victor's wreath, either in, in some sort of ancient uh, uh, Olympic game, or it was also given to soldiers returning after battle. So, so the, whatever the, the, he ha- the author has in mind, he definitely has an end uh, to this with victory in mind. So, so this crown is being given to a victor. The permanent pillar in the temple of God, which he's going to make them. Uh, this, is, this is very interesting. Pillars usually in the Bible speak of permanence. And we don't have to doubt that that's what he's talking about here. Because when he says it, listen to what he says, never shall he go out of it. So he explains it. A pillar stays in the, in the temple of God. It's permanent. You, you have a place to be there in the presence of God. And, and this also seems to be a play on words with Jesus. Because they just got kicked out of the synagogue. So it seems that he's saying, though you've been kicked out of the synagogue, you have a place in my kingdom. You have a place in my presence. You've been accepted, received, and no one can take you out of here. It's inseparable unity with God in his kingdom is what's in mind here. And it's the idea of of reaching the end, which is Jesus Christ. And then this new Jerusalem, the city of God, this is an, another image and another picture, a word picture that is a reality that will come to them. Uh, it, we see this in Revelation chapter 20, right? The, the, the new Jerusalem coming. And when does it come? It, it definitely comes after the, the king who has Lord of Lords and, and King of Kings who has a sword in his mouth and comes in a white horse and a robe dipped in blood. And, and as one of my profs said, that blood ain't his. He's coming here as a warrior to defeat his enemies and rescue his people. Again, the images of conquering. And after he has defeated the enemies which don't belong in his land, he plants his flag on the earth. He says, all of it is mine. I promised uh, my people that wherever their foot would step, it's mine. I told Adam to go and subdue. You couldn't do it. I'll do it. And all of it is his. And, And now it's here. Again, these images of, a, of conquering are here. And, and, and that is definitely what he's trying to give to them. And then he says his name on them. He's going to write his name on them. And, and, and there's a lot to say here, but this is definitely, I think, and, and, and Isaiah 62 too. Uh, you know, whenever you see something in Revelation that, you know, sometimes I see something, I don't know exactly what it means. It would be great to just go back to the Old Testament because a lot of times it's already been mentioned. 
And, and what he's telling them is, hey, it's already been here. Just, just put that in mind. And I think Isaiah 62, 2 is here. And, and again, this is a messianic passage uh, uh, when the Lord returns and sets his kingdom visibly for all to see. And he says, uh, to those who belong in this kingdom, Isaiah 62, 2, you shall be called by a new name, which the mouth of the Lord will give. I definitely think that Jesus has this in mind. He's saying this end, this promise that I've promised, that's where you're going to be. That's where you're going to be. This new name has the idea of ownership and a new status or function. And he's saying, you belong to me and your status is about to change. Keep on holding on. Uh, He gives them these future promises that will help them in their present suffering. Uh, This is not a perfect illustration, but perhaps it might help. You know, it helps me. Um, I'm from Chicago, so I'm a Chicago Bulls fan. And I know they haven't been great. Uh, Things are changing, though. Things are changing, okay? (laughs) But I remember when they were in the playoffs, which is some years ago, right? It's some years ago. But when they were in the playoffs, um, I I just, you know, I I was going to school. and and, And we went, I went to school from 6 to 10. And so if there was a game on, I couldn't watch it until I got home. So I would have it recorded in some way and, and I would tell my wife, please don't tell me who won. Don't tell me the scores. I'm waiting to come home. I'm going to make myself a sandwich. I'm going to drink a soda and I'm going to watch the game. Okay. So uh, I'm, I'm at, I'm, it's playoff season and, and I'm there at, at school and I'm just waiting. I'm waiting, oh Lord, I, I just want to get home. I want to watch the game. I want to rest, right? I have a brother in church who also likes sports. His name is Brother Felix. And uh, Brother Felix sent me a text. He usually doesn't send me a text. But as a pastor, I'm worried. So I'm like, I'm in school. And I said, I got to check. And I open the phone. And you know what he t- says on the text? And he says, the Bulls won. I said, ah, I'm happy. But at the same time, I'm like, I want to watch the game. So, so he, he gives me the news ahead of time. And, and so I go home. And I'm a little upset. I'm not going to lie. But I love my brother. So I'm not going to express any, any ill will toward him. And so I come home. I make my sandwich. And I grab my soda. And I'm watching the game. I'm a little disappointed. And I'm watching the game. But you know what? The whole time, the Bulls look like they're losing. I mean, they're losing in the first quarter, the second quarter, the, the third quarter. I'm like, oh, my goodness. And, and, and believe it or not, my emotions start working. I'm like, hey, wait a minute. I, I thought we won. But what is going on here? And, and all of a sudden, in the fourth quarter, boom, there comes the Bulls, and they win. Every time that, that I got sad watching the Bulls lose, every time that it looked like it didn't win, I would just remember, wait a minute, they win at the end. They win at the end. That, that present reality, reality will comfort you in your testing, your affliction, while your emotions are going up and down. These truths of what Jesus Christ has done on the cross, which is a present reality, uh, and also what he will give to us in the age to come, they're meant to encourage us in our suffering. Just just look. Lawyer Jones was right. That's That's why we're here in the park looking at the scriptures. We're looking at the age to come. That's why we're looking and pointing our eyes to the Messiah, the risen Lord. Oh. Now, the last, the final verse, right? Uh, we're going to go to that third and final element uh, uh, that is found, an ingredient, a point that is always found in all these messages is a call for those who have an ear to hear. And this is uh, Jesus, one of the greatest preachers. You know, our, my preaching prophet, all, all of them used to say, okay, after you expose the text, uh, so what? You know, you can speak of Greek words and Hebrew words and you can explain the text and you can give historical, grammatical and everything. But at the end, you're speaking to people. So, so speak to them. What is the text saying to the people? 
And it seems that Jesus, who is the greatest preacher, knows this. And he says, just in case you thought this was just for Philadelphia, he says, anyone who has an ear to hear, listen to what the Spirit says to the churches. Talking to those who belong to me. You know, if there was, if there was a title to this sermon, I, I think it would be something like this. And this would be, would be what he would be telling us. Rejected by the world, but received by Christ. Despised by the world, but loved by God. I think that's the message he's given to Philadelphia. And I think that's what he wants to tell us today. I think that's what he wants to tell us today. And, and I made this very personal. You can put your name on there, but I made this very personal to me. I, I said, okay, David, don't be surprised at all if the world rejects you. They don't belong to him. Don't be surprised if the world rejects you. Expect it. It happened to, uh, to the disciples of Christ. Jesus said that, that, that no servant is greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you also. It happened to the disciples of the disciples. Paul the apostle in his last letter writes to Timothy, Timothy, indeed, all who desire to live a godly lifestyle in Christ Jesus, they will suffer and go through persecution. I'm not saying we're all going to die, but some may. Some of you may be sent to a foreign country. Some of you may be sent somewhere where you may not return. But one way or another, if you belong to Christ, surely the world who rejected him will reject his people. David, don't be surprised by rejection. Expect it. But when the world rejects you, never forget who holds the key to the kingdom. The one who died for you. Never forget that though you may be rejected by the world, by friends, by family, you may lose jobs. You may lose your very life. You are loved by Christ, received by Christ. And there is a crown that belongs to his people. There is a city and pillars. There is an age to come that is to come. If there was a message for those who hear, it would be Jesus is alive. Jesus is sovereign. Jesus has authority over life and death. Jesus will preserve you through trials. Jesus will humble his enemies and he will reign forever. And those whom he loves will reign with him. I think that would be the message for those who hear today. And, and I'll finish with this. If there is someone here who does not belong to Christ, I think you, you might know who you are. I think you might know who you are. You've never come to him. You've never trusted him. You've never said, forgive me. I have sinned against God. You've never beat your chest. Today, the Lord says, if you have ears to hear, this is a gift. Come to him. Call to him. He forgives sinners. I invite you to pray with me. O true one and holy one, you who have the key of David, who have given us access to your presence, we stand blameless because of what you have done. You are worthy. And our desire is to have affection and will and mind just devoted to you. You have done this. 
and whatever is to come, whatever we're going through and whatever will come tomorrow, we just ask that you give us the strength that you have promised. We'll hold on to you, Lord. We'll hold on to you. We'll hold fast because you're coming soon. You are our hope. And Lord, if, if there's someone here who's calling for you now, I just ask that you assure to him or her that you have access, you alone, and you give the kingdom to the poor of spirit. Hear them. In Jesus' name, amen.